Hello and welcome to series three of the Catalyst podcast. My name is Ken Valady, partner and co-founder at Progressive. This latest series accompanies the new book that I've co-written with Eamon Carey called The Startup Lexicon, which is a guide to the words, phrases, jargon and terminology used in the startup and tech world. In each episode, Eamon and I will discuss two to three key words that are crucial to the understanding of the world of startups. Some of these words you may know, some you may not know, and maybe some, after listening to our discussion, you will see in a different light. All in all, though, our aim is to help demystify the everyday language of startups. And before I forget, details on where you can actually purchase a startup lexicon in both physical and digital format can be found in the episode notes for today's recording. Now on with the show. So how are things, Eamon? We're back again for another episode. How's life? Uh, pretty good. This is a well-oiled machine at this stage, just uh, looking at the window at a beautiful pre-summer's day. Indeed. So today, with the sun shining, we're going to focus on a few words within the I to M section of the lexicon book. Within this window, the book itself covers many words, including institutional investors, IPO, leverage buyout, liquidation preference, marketplace, metaverse, to name but a few. But in today's episode, Eamon and I will focus on three words, investor FAQ, LTV, CAC ratio, and MVP. So to kick off with, Eamon, if we look at investor FAQ, I know I say this a few times, and I have already in a few episodes, but this is one that I've seen, but I didn't know it was called investor FAQ until someone mentioned it. So I'd kind of seen it in action, but never realized it had that name. But to people out there who aren't aware of what it is, in layman's terms, it's a kind of a, what you would say a lightweight, easy to manage tool, which can either be part of a presentation or online on a Google Doc, but it provides easy access to the, the frequently asked questions that startups and companies get asked as they go through a, fund range, a fundraising process. So it's just everything you need to know about a company from an investor point of view in one place. And as you can imagine, when you go through rounds, lots of things are changing, lots of questions, lots of missing bits or loose bits can get forgotten about. And I would imagine an FAQ, investor FAQ, is a great way of professionally pulling all that together. So that's my interpretation of it. As I said, Eamon, I saw a few of these, predominantly at the back of decks, but didn't realise that was the actual name for it. But it makes complete sense to me. I suppose my first question to yourself, you're closer to the, the investor side, is are these kind of commonplace now or still kind of on the rise? Because you'd like to think this is mandatory. It makes complete sense, but is it? It should be. Mm, it it yeah. definitely should be. And certainly it is on the rise, but I would say the rise is more kind of slow and incremental rather than fast and exponential. But hopefully people listening to this will kind of uh, the scales will fall off their eyes. But as you said, the idea is to kind of have a frequently asked questions section, uh, either within your deck or ideally on a Google Google Docs or, or on a Notion page or something like that, where as you go through the investment process or as you, you know, talk to, to more and more mentors and advisors, you'll start to get asked lots of questions, usually the same, you know, 10, 15, 20 questions about your business. And it's just a really good thing to kind of note them down and to give, you know, reasonably comprehensive answers. Because one of the things I guess that companies don't always know about the kind of investment process, particularly when you're talking to an institutional investor or a VC investor, is that part of your job is to kind of equip one or two people within that firm with enough knowledge about your business to pitch it on your behalf. So normally what happens with us, for example, at Terra is I or one of my colleagues will meet a founder, we'll have a chat with them, we'll read their deck, we'll ask them a couple of questions, and then we go back later that week 
and present it to the rest of the partnership. And we say, hey, here's this company, here's what I liked, here's you know what I think the opportunity is, et cetera. And then they'll ask me questions about that business, right? So effectively, I'm answering questions about your company. And an FAQ document is just a really handy cheat sheet for me to have to go, okay, I'm going to be well equipped in that meeting to answer questions on your behalf. But also then afterwards, when everyone is kind of considering it a little bit more, I'll share the deck with the rest of the partnership. And then this FAQ document is something that's really valuable to send around as well, because usually, you know, once you've talked to 10 or 15 investors or clients or others, you'll have a good idea of what these most frequently asked questions are. And some of them you'll go, you know what, this one, maybe it's our, you know, go to market strategy or the key hires we need to make. Some of them are so important that you'll actually put them into your pitch materials or into your deck. But others, it's just good. Maybe you want to have a a slightly longer form, you know, three, four, five paragraphs or a little bit of a breakdown, maybe even of your, for example, your competition. You know, you can't go into a huge amount of detail in a 10 or 12 slide presentation about your competition. But in an investor FAQ, you can have five or 10 competitors listed, you know, paragraph on each one going what they do well, what you think you do better, what your differentiation is, etc. So it's just one of those really, really useful documents that, as you say, as you go through rounds, also becomes a living document, right? As you get into growth rounds, series A, series B and beyond, the questions are much more around kind of growth and retention and momentum and that side of things. Whereas when you're in the earlier stages, it's much more about maybe the fundamentals of the business. Um, But these kind of investor FAQ documents are just a really, really convenient thing that act as a cheat sheet for the insider at a VC fund who's trying to pitch you to the rest of their partnership, but also just a really good thing to be able to send around after a call, especially if you have a, you know, I mentioned on the last one of these, I went to this Tech Chill conference in Riga a week and a half ago. And, you know, all of the startup meetings there were 15 minutes long. Now, there's not a lot that you can get out of a 15-minute meeting other than, you know, usually a good impression and some headline information. But some of the companies were really good at going, okay, I'm going to send you now a link to a page that has an investor FAQ, links to our deck, links to a little bit more competitor analysis. And so it just shows real kind of a level of preparedness and a level of kind of systematic thinking about the business that that is a really positive signal for for me to see. Indeed. And, And in the book, in the lexicon, Connor Murphy, who's the founder of Bridge, gives a really comprehensive angle to the whole benefit of investor FAQs. And he talks about many four four key benefits. But the, the the bit that got me from his contribution was, first of all, it really helps build a better impression. And I, I completely can get that. So if you're meeting lots of investors, potential investors, it's a really great opportunity or have a, a reason to get back to them. So if they asked you a question, you didn't have time to answer, you can go back with the more substantial answer in a follow-up with the rest of the answers to kind of general questions that investors asked. But he had a really interesting angle, which is it does create a better impression, but there will be times, to your point, where you haven't got a lot of time to really get to the the crux of a, an issue with an investor, a potential investor. And the FAQ gives you an opportunity, if you've answered it maybe not to the best or to given the best answer you want, you've got a good excuse or a reason to go back, put together a better answer, and then send that on to the investor afterwards. So it gives you a chance to kind of really say, remix, for want of a better word, or enhance your initial answer and get back to the investor and say, look, really great to meet you, but just wanted to let you know, um, you asked this question, I wanted to give it more detail around it. Or maybe I didn't answer it as well as I had time to, so here's some more detail. So it's a really nice way to have a second shot in a way. And I think that kind of cuts both ways. I think that's absolutely right, that you know, one of the things that I say to companies all the time is, you know, one of the most powerful phrases in the English language is the three words, I don't know. And it's quite a good thing in some of these investor meetings, you know, if someone asks you a 
complicated question about your technology or your go-to-market strategy to go, I don't have that information with me at the moment, or I don't know the answer to that question right now, but let me sync up with our CTO or let me have a chat with the CMO and let me come back to you with a link to our FAQ or a link to a proper answer on that. So I think on the founder side, you're exactly right. You can kind of amend maybe an impression or a false impression that you made. But also I think on the investor side of things, you know, frequently in these you know, 15, even 30 minute kind of conversations that you have with founders, you normally hang up and five minutes later, you're like, oh, I should have asked that question. I should have asked this really obvious thing. And actually, if you as a founder have done enough of these meetings, you'll have already been asked that obvious question a couple of times, you'll have it in the FAQ, and you'll save yourself another kind of forward and back 15 minute call with me if I can look at it and go, okay, actually, the metrics say X, so it's a little too early for us, or they say Y, and it's a little too late for us. You know, just having that information in, in the FAQ is, is something that's, you know, beneficial for you being able to go back to people, but also for me as an investor, what I've stupidly forgot to ask something, frequently FAQ documents allow me to go, oh, thankfully, someone else smarter than me did ask it, and they've already got a really good answer prepared. Yeah, very true, very true indeed. So there you go, lots of benefits to getting and pulling together and managing a really strong investor FAQ. And right back to the start of the conversation, if you haven't got one, you should definitely start building one. So moving on to the second phrase term we're going to cover today is the LTV CAC ratio, which going into the, the weeds, LTV is lifetime value of a customer and CAC CAC is a customer acquisition cost. And the ratio LTV over CAC generally gives a company an idea, I would say, if you're commercially viable in terms of how much a customer brings in and how much it costs in turn to, to acquire that customer. The rule of thumb that I think we referenced in the book and the, the rule of thumb I generally hear is that if this ratio is three or above, that's a really strong sign. So customers bringing in more than it costs to get them. However, if that ratio dips below one, then technically speaking, it's costing more to acquire a customer than the amount that customer is going to bring in over their lifetime. So this the more I talk to people around this measurement, this metric, this seems to be a really key metric that comes up, obviously for certain companies, but a really key metric that gets asked and analysed. What's your, what's your experience of the, the LTV CAC ratio? It's a tough one for companies, but certainly as you say, yeah, if you're in a position where it's costing you more to bring in customers than it is to than you're receiving from them, then you certainly have some some fundamentals to, to look at. I think one of the one of the big challenges with an LTV to CAC ratio for companies that are maybe two or three years old, is that sometimes it's actually really hard to understand what the lifetime value of your customer is going to be, right? It might be that you have customers that will stay with you for 20 months and, and then churn. It might be that you have customers that will stay with you for five or 10 years. And, and in some cases, depending on the age of the company, you won't you won't know that answer yet. So it does require a certain amount of kind of guesswork and kind of finger in the air type of thinking for early stage companies and, and sometimes can be used by investors as a kind of stick to beat companies with unfairly, I think, in, in my view. I think your customer acquisition cost is something that you can control and understand and that as you get better at it, you can manage, you can decrease it by you know, diversifying the channels that you're using by, you know, bringing some things in-house by looking at your mix of organic, paid, earned, etc. So I think the customer acquisition cost side of the, the equation is easier. But if you look at the kind of customer lifetime value, you need to look at the number of customers that you have, you need to look at your churn rate, and then you need to look at the amount of time that your customers stick with you, and then also your kind of your gross margin, right? So what you want to do is look at the kind of 
average revenue that you're generating from each customer, each client. And this is why you know, LTV over CAC tends to work better maybe for SaaS businesses, subscription businesses, direct-to-consumer, et cetera. But you want to look at your kind of average revenue per user, the kind of churn rate, and then multiply that by your gross margin. And that will give you kind of the, the lifetime value of your customer. So if it's someone who pays $100 a month, your margin is $50 a month, and they stay with you for 20 months, then it's a pretty simple number for you to run. And then your customer acquisition cost is is what they call the kind of fully loaded cost of, of acquiring a company or a customer. So that's your entire sales and marketing budget divided by the number of new customers acquired in a in a given period of time, right? It can be a month, a, a quarter of a, or a year. So let's say that you spend typical, let's say, seed stage startup, maybe you spend £500,000 in, in a year on sales and marketing. And that's your everything from your VP of marketing to your content editor to you know LinkedIn ads that you're testing or TikTok ads. So you spend this £500,000 and you've acquired 500 new users. Well, in that case, your, your calculation would be £500,000 spent divided by 500 users acquired, which would give you a £1,000 customer acquisition cost. And then you map the lifetime value or divide the, the lifetime value by your, your customer acquisition cost. And, and in the case of, of the example I've just given, with a £1,000 customer acquisition cost, you would hope that the lifetime value of, of that customer is, is in excess of, of £3,000. It's a good measure, particularly as, as you're growing, and it is a good measure to keep an eye on because you should always be thinking about ways to keep your customer acquisition costs kind of steady or ideally kind of going going down a little bit and, and being cognizant that there will be times when it goes up rapidly. But also it's a kind of good one to kind of look at for your lifetime value. If that number is low, are you maybe charging your customers too little? Are there maybe add-on sources of revenue that you can add into the into the product to just increase that customer lifetime value a little bit more? But as I say, sometimes it's it's one of those ones that can be difficult to predict because some there are platforms, you know, for example, Dropbox or Google Drive or others where you know I have been a customer of those platforms for probably eight, ten years in in some cases. There are others where I will use it a little bit like the gym membership, right? Like you sign up at Christmas, you forget about it until June, and then you cancel it and feel a little bit guilty until you know next Christmas. So I think it's hard sometimes to predict what that customer lifetime value is like. And you know, you can look at businesses like yours. You can try and find guesstimates for for what it's going to be in your case. But you know, I think sometimes it's it's one of those things that's easier to calculate as you get further into the um, the lifetime of the business. I know when I think it, we we interviewed, I spoke to Tom Eiselman, who heads up entrepreneurship at Harvard in in series two of the podcast, and he had a great book called the the Failsafe Startup. And from memory, we were talking about this ratio, and and I fully get your point around SaaS based companies, where to a certain extent, yes, you can turn on and off, but you're going to get ongoing money coming in. But where it's not SaaS based, he's query over it, or or con- was a, something you got to consider is yes, this is a really good metric, and yes. 100% get your point that it's difficult to calculate at the start, but you get better as time goes on. But he had this angle, which is different time zones, not time zones, different times to be considered. So for example, with your lifetime value, that happens over time. So you need that money coming in from customers over time, whereas acquisition cost is more of a spend more upfront, generally speaking, where you're paying for marketing. So yes, it is a, his angle was, yes, it's very important that you keep on top of that metric and it's a very crucial metric to be on top of and, and to get the right side of. 
But underneath it, we've got to be very careful about your cash flow because one kind of delivers over time in terms of the revenue coming in, the cash coming in from a customer over their lifetime, but the other one can be spent very quickly. There is a kind of a, what I'm trying to get at in a long-winded way, there's a kind of a basic accountancy management you have to put on it as well. It's a very good metric. Yes, it's three, it's four, it's five, but underneath it all, these monies come in at different times. So you've got to be very careful that you could have a great ratio but if you don't manage your money and your cash flow properly, obviously <laughs> it won't stand for anything. Oh yeah, you're, you're, it's not going to end well, right? Like I think that's the challenge sometimes for companies is they get to a point where their LTV over CAC ratio gets to three, and then they go, okay, well let's now you know 10x our marketing budget, and you know we're going to 10x our, our revenue alongside it or more. The challenge that they have when when they decide to do something like that very frequently is that actually exactly to what you've said. For some businesses, they might be on 60 or 90 day payment terms. For some businesses, the customer lifetime value, you know, 90% of that might accrue in Q4 because that's where their clients spend all of their budget if it's not that predictable kind of SaaS-based revenue. And you can very quickly find yourself in a place where like you've acquired lots of customers by spending the bulk of your free cash flow, but then you're in a position where you you actually can't service them because you don't have any kind of incomings. And, and that's where we see more and more kind of venture debt and revenue-based financing platforms starting to to come to the fore that they can go, okay, we can kind of almost lend you money against the, the marketing costs that you're going to put out there once you've got this kind of more predictable LTV over CAC ratio. And so that's been something that's allowed a lot of these more SaaS-type businesses or the ones where even if there is some seasonality built into their revenue to be able to kind of facilitate this growth in cash flow without necessarily kind of taking all of the the cash assets out of the business, but instead relying on venture debt or, or revenue-based financing. Very true, very true. So to summarize the LTV CAC ratio, it's, it's a crucial measurement for lots of companies. You have to keep on top of it. It takes a bit of time to get your head around it. It may never be perfect, but the more you put into it, should we say the more accurate you can get. But outside of that, you've got to also kind of stand back from it sometimes and, and not get taken in too much by the number because there's other things you've got to be in, taken into consideration like cash flow and timings, et cetera. So it's a crucial ingredient, I would say, to growing a business. Yeah, anytime you go and talk to a VC, it's good to have at least a, an estimate of, of it or, or at least a kind of good answer for how you calculate it or, or why you're why you're not calculating it. I think for some companies, the risk is one of these phrases or things that people kind of think is like, you know, the most important number to have at the start of a deck or at the start of a sentence. And and I think there is no one kind of golden number that's going to guarantee you an investment or guarantee you an, an exit. I think this is just one of many factors that, that weigh in, but it's certainly one that investors love to pull the scab back on whenever they can. Hmm. We don't have that definition in the book, pull the scab back on. <laughs> So moving on to our, our final word, which is MVP, which stands for Minimum Viable Product. This was made very famous by Steve Blank and Eric Rees and was one of the first words I definitely came across when I jumped from the corporate ship and started to work with um, the startup world. And in essence, it's where a company builds a product with core features. They take to the market early to get responses, collect insight from customers, and then they take that back and that helps them build a product for further launch and hopefully further success and growth. So it kind of goes against the maybe more traditional way, which is build a product, get it absolutely perfect, and then launch it. This is more like you've got to keep things live, get feedback as you go along, and that improves your chances of success. Eamon, how do you see the MVP? It's a really overused term and I'd imagine sometimes misinterpreted or misperceived what do you think is it because it, it means a lot of things to different people 
Yeah, it can mean a kind of a thousand different things from kind of mock-ups to a you know functioning version of a of a product. The idea behind it, I think, kind of came about, you know, I guess in the last 20 years or so, and was, was really popularized in a book called The Lean Startup, as you mentioned by Eric Ries. And the idea behind The Lean Startup was, you know, you should always be kind of prototyping, testing, iterating, and then kind of repeating that process again, rather than just launching a business. And it's a, it is a, a methodology, I guess, that a lot of, a lot of companies, startups, and, and now increasingly big businesses alike, follow because in the past the way that people built businesses was you know they built something they launched it and you know a little bit like that Kevin Costner movie Field of Dreams right if you build it they will come you kind of hope for hope for the best the lean startup methodology says no you don't do that before you start writing code before you start building a business before you start hiring a team you should be going out and doing customer development you should be going out and talking to potential users and and potential clients and soliciting as much feedback as you can and then you know only then with that feedback do you make decisions and decide what to build and part of the process of gathering that feedback is this idea of a minimum viable product and so in some cases i have had companies come to me with wireframes like very simple almost kind of drawings of what they wanted their product or their website to look at or look like I've had other companies come to me with, you know, clickable PDFs that they've made in PowerPoint or, or Keynote or, or others that are just kind of cobbled together graphics of what the product might look like. I've had companies that are developing hardware come to me with very, very basic kind of Raspberry Pi versions of what they want to build or very bulky examples of what they're aiming towards in the in the future. So I think the minimum viable product can mean a lot of things, but the, the fundamental idea behind it is that it is something that you can build or assemble quickly at a relatively low cost, ideally a kind of zero cost, you know, the cost of drawing a couple of mock-ups or, or the cost of making a few kind of wireframes should should really just be your time and the cost of whatever software platform you use, but that you can then go and get feedback from the market very quickly and then go, okay, rather than spending, you know, tens of thousands of, of pounds or, or, you know, hundreds of hours building something that we have a hunch that people might want, instead you're getting validated feedback from people based on this minimum viable product that then allows you to go and build something that's maybe a little bit more robust, that's maybe a little bit more kind of designed effectively with what the end users want in mind and ultimately build a product that is going to be more successful as a result. Because obviously, if you're building something that you hope people will want, it has probably a much lower chance of success than something that you know, at least, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 people that you've spoken to have said, yes, I want this, I like the look and feel of what you're building, etc. And so companies use them all the time. But you know, as I say, I have been pitched with MVPs for investment, we have companies that have demonstrated uh, MVPs to, to potential clients ahead of, you know, potential partnerships or as part of a kind of design partnership to kind of co-design a, a product together. So it's an incredible, incredibly useful process to to go through. It's something that big companies continue to do on a on a day-in, day-out basis. They're constantly kind of testing and learning and iterating and and repeating. And whilst, you know, Facebook might not launch an MVP every week, they're certainly experimenting with different versions of their product in Ireland and the UK and New Zealand and and different markets to get feedback. So even the biggest companies are kind of thinking about this this process of testing and learning as they go. I think and in the book, I know Jim Kite, who headed up the the tech program um, Next Tech Now at Publicis Media, he had a very interesting angle, which is sometimes he feels that 
the MVP is more built to be investor friendly. It's the it's a disruptor. It's a new piece of tech, and sometimes it's forgotten the corporate who you have to work with in some case, or you want to buy this tech or go in with you and, and work this tech. Their case needs to be considered as well. Sometimes that kind of gets forgotten. You know, the the actual corporate angle, what corporates need, what the story you need to sell to them. And, and it's kind of, we go down this route of, this is great, people want it, et cetera. And then you go to a large company and say, you know, do you want to come in and, and partner with us on this? And they say, well, actually, we don't need this. And they're kind of forgotten sometimes. Does that ring true? Sometimes it's like we get so we get so caught up with the shiny thing that when you go and talk to a, a large company, a corporate in this, where they say, actually, we, we don't think there is a need for this. And why are you doing it? Yeah, unfortunately... That's a story I've I've heard before. I'm sure it's like a country and western album that someone could write with uh, about it. But I think this is the value of a really good kind of MVP slash lean startup type of process. That you know when you're doing this customer development, yes, you want to go and talk to you know the end user who's going to be using it. But if your distribution channel is going to be through a bank or an insurance company or an automotive company or who knows who, you also have to go and talk to them, right? Like there's a range of stakeholders involved in in every business not just investors not just customers but you know distribution channels marketing partners etc cetera, etc cetera. and so i think to get the best possible view of what your mvp needs to evolve into you have to have that kind of diverse range of, of feedback from different stakeholders in order to help you make the best decisions right because i think this is this is a key, you know, whether it's investors or anyone else, like founders spend a lot of their time just having to kiss a lot of frogs effectively. And so I think that's part of this process as well is getting something, taking it out to lots of people, soliciting as much feedback as as you can. And, you know, for me, it's a really positive signal when I'm meeting, you know, very, very early stage, almost idea stage company. You know, they have no metrics. There's no LTV over CAC ratio they can show me. There's nothing, no analytics under the hood. The thing that impressed me the most about companies like that is if they're saying, look, we're doing 50, 60 customer development conversations every week. We're using this tool or this platform to kind of get as much feedback to allow us to stack rank our feature set as possible. We're talking to these, you know, not just our customers, but these other people who we think could be the person who's actually going to pay for the product rather than the end user of it, etc. And you can do all of those things with an MVP. I think Again, nearly 20 years ago now when I started my first company, you know, we were going in and talking to O2 and 3 and, and Vodafone. And you, know, you couldn't really go to them with an MVP. You know, if you were trying to get them to do million, million pound deals, you had to go with something a little bit more substantial. But I think now when you're going in and talking to publicists or any of the media agencies, you know, O2, Barclays, anyone else, I think it's much more acceptable to go in with not a fully formed product, but actually some mock-ups of what it's going to look like. The one thing that you've then got to hold yourself to is if they say, yes, we love this, when can we have it? You have a timeline in mind that allows you to be realistic and say, okay, great. We'll have version one coming in three months. Now we're taking all of this feedback on board and building it. We'll have version two in six, and then we'll have the, the version that you've just seen here in approximately nine months. So don't be honest with people that it's an MVP and that, you know, the full working products will take a little bit longer to to get into their hands. And as I say, I think people are much more accepting of that now, largely because I think most people have, have at least heard of, if not read, the um, the Lean Startup book. Indeed. Indeed. So, well, Eamon, I think we're there again. I'm looking at the time. That's, that's three words covered in our usual time. I think definitely MVP we could we could Well-oiled machine. I said it at the start. Indeed. I wouldn't say that so much, but I think we're getting there. And so that's it for now. The This episode, hopefully the words investor FAQ, LTV, CAC ratio, and MVP are now more understood. 
As before, please let Eamon and I know if you've got any thoughts on our interpretations of these words. Our email details can be found in the show notes. So, Eamon, thanks again for your time, and we'll catch up at the next episode. Thank you, Ken. That's it for this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the series and please rate us and leave a review on your chosen podcast platform. And as mentioned at the start, if you want to explore further 200 plus startup words and phrases, details of where you can buy the startup lexicon book can be found in the notes this episode. Thanks again and have a great day.